how much of a wine geek do you consider yourself to be? And I ask this question because depending on how much of a wine geek you are, you might be starting to dive down the rabbit hole of how winemaking techniques impact your experience with every glass of wine. We're also starting to see some wine labels include winemaking information on the back of the bottle. So for today's episode, I wanted to dive into a collection of common winemaking techniques and descriptors that you may see on the back of the label that'll give you a better understanding of why they're including them, but also what that means for your experience in the glass and how you can use them as a clue to create delicious food pairings. So if you're ready to learn more about some winemaking techniques and how they impact your experience with the glass, let's get started and dive right into today's episode. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Wine Talk Talk. I'm your host, Amalia Aaronoser, and I'm so happy that you're here with me today. If we haven't met before, it's lovely to have you here, and if we have, welcome back. Now, for those of you who are new, you should know that I've been a professional smile for over 20 years now, and it's my passion and my privilege to make learning about wine not only fun and easy, but also practical, meaning I wanna make sure you have the tools and feel empowered when you're shopping for wines, not just for fancy occasions, but for everyday events when you're making memories with family and friends. So on that note, the practical information that you're going to gain in today's episode is all about winemaking techniques and the terminology that we use to describe them. And I'm going to explain why winemakers would put that information on the back of the label, because they're trying to give you more clues so you know if this is a wine style that's going to fit into the occasion that you're having. As a caveat to today's episode, I have six different terms I'm going to be breaking down for you today. But this is a topic that we could spend an entire week together and just scratch the surface of how amazing winemaking is from a scientific point of view, a historical point of view, and an evolution point of view of where are we going with it. So know that I'm just scratching the surface. But these are the terms that I think as a wine lover will benefit you the most to get you started and feel comfortable with it. They're also terms that do have a direct impact on your experience on the glass. The first term I want to talk about today is called malolactic fermentation. And you might see malolactic fermentation specifically on the label, though you may. And definitely if you're visiting the winery site and looking up the wine descriptors and looking up the vintage sheet on a specific wine, you will see this here. But what malolactic fermentation will be described as a label is when you start seeing the word creamy rich on the back of a label. And why do these show up as descriptors this way? Because malolactic fermentation isn't necessarily a fermentation, which is strange, but it's just the way we word it. It's actually a conversion of acids. We take the tart acids that are naturally found in wine and it has a conversion into more lactic or smooth acids. And so we get a more of a creamy texture, a richer texture in the wine. Now, why will a winemaker choose to do this? Generally, this is done for most red wines. So just be aware that this is generally done for red wines, but we also do it for white wines. And here, the, one of the most common examples that you'll see is a beautiful, rich, creamy Chardonnay. And this is the one that has been in oak and it's going to have malolactic fermentation. And the reason we know that is because in the descriptors, we're using terms of rich, at creamy. And again, this is a conversion of acids. Now, if you're having a Chablis, an un-oak style of Chardonnay, you're going to see the terms crisp, clean, refreshing as descriptors. This means that it hasn't had malolactic fermentation. Therefore, 
it has more acidity to it. It has more of an edge, a snap. So malolactic fermentation is important to know because it gives us the roundness of the edges. It gives us a velvety or a richer mouthfeel, and it can give us those really smooth, delicious wines. And in regards to pairings, when wines have malolactic fermentation, they're going to be more synergetic with butter-based sauces or creamy milk-based sauces because we have converted the acids into like-minded acids as in milk. So this is a clue when you're pairing, look for creamier cheeses, cream-based sauces, more butter in the dish. So malolactic fermentation, it's also really cool in that it used to happen naturally. It's a bacteria. Wineries can sprinkle it in or they can allow it to happen naturally in the winery and it happens in the spring. So in the winery, the temperature needs to rise to a certain level so that bacteria can come to life and the conversion can take place. If a winery chooses not to allow malolactic fermentation in the wine, then they can actually stop it and make sure that it doesn't occur. So it's a really cool thing that no one really understood until we had a better understanding of how things fermented. So we can give kudos to Louis Pasteur and all of his work there. But malolactic fermentation is a conversion of the sharper, more tart acids into creamier, more smooth acids. And in the glass, you get a different experience from that wine because of it. So that's malolactic fermentation. The next winemaking technique I want to talk about is barrels. And barrels is a whole topic unto itself, but I want to specifically talk about French barrels versus American barrels and why we may ferment in a barrel. Let's first cover a barrel. So a barrel is a vessel. What barrels gives us is with wood, it is more porous. So we will get some oxygen flow into that wine. Now a barrel is considered new, meaning that it has its most flavor components to be able to give to the wine for about two, two and a half years. After that time, it becomes more of a neutral vessel meaning that it gives us oxygen flow, but it doesn't give us direct strong flavors anymore. And so depending on how new the barrel is, you may see on the back of a wine label, the terms aged in new oak or spent one year in new oak or aged in neutral oak. These are very common phrases you may see. And what they're trying to tell you is how the winemaker used the oak to bring out and enhance the characteristics of the grapes from the field. Oak is meant to complement. It's not meant to overpower. There was definitely a time in history where people would say that the wine was like a splinter juice. There was so much oak in it. People were making fun that they could feel like they were almost getting splinters in their mouth. So that's definitely not what we want. But to use oak is an enhancement, especially with malolactic fermentation that I just discussed. Oak can bring another layer and we will see flavor components and descriptors like vanilla, coconut, nutty flavors, toast. When you see these descriptors on a wine bottle, these are clues that it, the wine has spent some time in oak. Now, if you have an old world wine, there are some countries such as Spain that has oak aging requirements by law that a winery must abide to to have a certain designation on their wine. I'm not going to cover all those today, but know that there are regions of the world that do have rules around how much time a wine must spend in oak to make sure that it meets the rules and regulations of the area that it is made in. Now let's talk about French oak versus American oak and why a winemaker would choose one over the other. 
Now for French oak, we have five different forests of styles of French oak. Each one of those has a different graining level in the wood itself and therefore has different flavor components that can come out of it. So there's an art to the winemaker deciding which French oak that they want to use. Then we can toast a barrel as well. What that means is that we're going to put fire inside the finished barrel and we can toast the inside of the barrel. Think of this like the best smelling campfire on the planet where we put new oak and we put a nice campfire in the middle of it. And by doing so, we open up the pores in the wood and that can give us stronger, more toasty flavors in the wine. And we can go to a light char, to a full on burnt char and actually full charred American oak barrels is what we use when we make bourbon. But that's a topic for another day. So French oak generally is considered to be a bit softer not as intense in flavors and aromatics, and it gives the wine a soft nuance of the flavors coming from the oak. American oak, on the other side, can be very powerful, and lots of those vanilla and toast notes can come from those American oaks. Now, this is a generalization. We will have both French oak that can be more pronounced and American oak that can be more muted or more neutral, but Generally, American oak is more forward in its components so they can give to the wine. We generally use American oak with warmer climate wine styles because when we grow wines in a warmer climate, we're going to get more heat and therefore more fruit flavors, more sugars. So the stronger flavor of the oak won't overpower it when we use American barrels, where cooler or more moderate climates wines, we generally use a more moderate or a French oak barrel. So again, those are generalizations, but those are the differences and why you may see those called out on the back of the label. Now, when you see those, obviously, if you have butter and toast and nuttiness and coconut, this is going to help you. What are you going to pair with these wines? So you can use those terms to find synergy in the dishes that you're pairing with because of those oak nuances that come through. If you're doing something with vanilla or you're doing custards or pie crust or a quiche Lorraine or chicken pot pie, then an American oak barreled wine with all of its richness and the vanilla and the butter that comes through because malolactic fermentation is usually used here as well, going to be delicious. And for the French oak, which is more muted, you can look for more savory integrated dishes and go that way. So there you have some descriptions of the difference between French and American oak. The other piece on barrels I want to bring up to you is why a winery may choose to ferment in a barrel. So when we actually ferment the wines, so when we bring the grapes back, squish them, we allow the alcoholic fermentation to take place, we can do this in a few different vessels, one of them being a neutral oak barrel. And neutral meaning that it's going to be an old oak barrel and it's going to allow for more oxygen to come into that focus. There is no good or bad, if you will, of fermenting an oak, but it is a choice that the winery will make. Our other options are going to be a steel tank. So you'll see a big steel tank. We can temperature control a steel tank, allowing us to have a bit more control over the fermentation, though we can definitely control oak fermentation now as well. And if you're visiting a winery that is fermenting an oak, you're going to see Let's call them bands around those big tanks. And those are to control the temperature, both up and down, to make sure that everything goes as planned. And then the other vessel we can use is to actually ferment is cement. And cement is having a revival, if you will, 
in that cement was very old. When we look back to Roman and Greek times, cement would have been, along with wood, the vessels that wines were fermented in. But cement is porous. It is from the earth. A lot of winemakers are really enjoying using it. It is cool. It's a very grounded vessel, if you will to be able to ferment the wines in. So you can ferment an oak. What it gives us is permeable oxygen through the wood. You can do steel. Generally, we do steel for very crisp, clean wine styles. It's very neutral. So for steel, for example, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc will be very expressive in its nose. We really want to keep that wine clean. has no malar to fermentation. It's about that crisp acidity. Steel is a great option here, and cement is an option in the middle. It doesn't give oxygen. It does have some textures, so it, it is another option for winemakers. So we have those three main vessel styles to ferment our wines, and you may see those called out on the back of wine labels. Now, the next term I want to talk to you about is unfiltered. Why would a winemaker decide to not filter his wines? We see this more commonly in red wines, only because most people don't like chunks and floaties that they can see in whites. It doesn't mean we don't do it. In wine, as you'll be discovering, the more you try different wines from around the world, it is always a gray zone. Someone is always doing something. There's no black and white all the time to it. But an unfiltered wine in reds, for example, means that the winemaker has chosen to leave some particles still in that wine. It's not going to hurt you, but he or she feels that it's going to deliver a better experience of the wine to not strip it clean, if you will, to leave some textures and some nuances. Now, do these wines that are unfiltered need to be decanted? Not all the time, but if you do have an unfiltered wine style, generally they will call it out on the wine label. And you might want to consider just standing that bottle out for about 12 hours before serving it. So any sediment that may be in the wine goes to the bottom. But an unfiltered wine may be really fine particles that we wouldn't even be able to really capture in a decanting. But unfiltered is about leaving a bit more their terroir, the soul of the place, and a bit more nuances within the wine itself. So unfiltered is definitely a term you're going to see on the back of the label. The other term you're going to see on the label is bottle aged. Why would a winemaker decide to call out that this wine has been bottled aged? It's because once a wine is made, it may be aged in barrels, then put into a bottle. It just is a resting place. Some wines from around the world do have legal re regulations on how long they need to be aged in a bottle before they can be released to you, for example, but it can be a winemaker's choice as well in that they just want the wine to rest, to sort of all come together in that bottle before they are released to you. And the wine will not develop much in the bottle once it's there. So the cork allows some oxygen permeability, but basically when the wine is in the bottle, it is who it is. And this is where obviously if you're into collecting wines or aging wines, the time that it rests in the bottle, it takes a really long time for that wine to take on some of that oxygen coming through the cork. But if it has been bottle aged, they're trying to tell you they've allowed the wine to rest. It is who it is right now, but you may consider aging it longer. And this is where your friend Google calls in in regards to looking at the wine and deciding, is it drinking at a state that you want to enjoy it right now? Or should you leave it a little bit longer? But bottle age is just a clue. It's an extra bit of love, if you will, from a winemaker to just let the wine settle after coming out of the barrel or however it was made. And there may be a legal requirement for that wine to be aged, especially in old world countries. And the next term I want to talk to you about is dry farmed. 
Now, dry farms you'll see used most often in New World countries, such as the United States, New Zealand, Australia. And the reason you'll see that is because many Old World countries have rules about irrigation. So Old World countries have more rules about when or if you are allowed to water your vineyards, or, or you just have to accept the vintage as nature has provided for it. So when we have dry farmed on the back of the label, what a winery is sharing with you is that they have not irrigated or watered their vineyards outside of the rain that was provided for during that vintage. And by doing so, it means that the vines generally produce less bunches and more intensely flavored grape bunches because the vine isn't living in the perfect environment. You may have heard that a vine under stress produces better wines. There's some truth to this in that you have to remember that a grapevine is ultimately a weed. It's goal in life is world domination and it puts out grapes with seeds inside so that birds and animals will eat those seeds and then scatter around the planet and through their excrement those seeds will be planted and the grapevine continues its path to world domination. So when we force the vine to be under stress, if you will, if it's not a consistent source of water, it's just coming with the weather, then the plant has to decide that it's not going to produce as much fruit potentially. It's not going to put energy there because it needs to think about how it's going to survive. So what a winery shares with you that they are dry farming as a practice in their vineyard. They're sharing with you that they are generally terroir driven as well. They're letting the expressiveness come through for the vintage and for that vineyard, as well as generally their wines are going to be more concentrated. There is a risk, of course, in doing this, but generally it also goes along with sustainability, whether it be organic or biodynamic practices as well. So dry farming usually layers into other winemaking practices that are first friendly. And the last term that I want to share with you today is residual sugar. And you might see that as RS on a label. And what this means is that the wine style has leftover sugar in the wine. And the winery has chosen to do that so that it is, whether it's an off-dry wine style or just a little bit of extra sweetness to it. But residual sugar means that the winemaker has chosen, whether by law, because of the style that he is making and there are rules around it, or because of his vision of how he wants that wine to be, then residual sugar happens when we don't allow all of the yeast eat all of the sugar in the base wine, meaning that the winemaker has decided to stop the fermentation from completing to a dry wine, meaning that the yeast have not been allowed to eat all of the sugar and convert all of it into alcohol. They're going to leave some residual sugar in the wine, which is going to leave some sweetness. So you may see RS on a label. Let's just recap the terms we talked about today. We talked about malolactic fermentation and how this is going to show up on a label is those terms about creamy and rich. And this is a conversion of the naturally tart essence in the grapes converting through a bacterial conversion into the creamier lactic style of acids. And so this is going to have a synergy in regards to pairing with buttery and milk-based sausage. So malolactic fermentation, you're going to see clues for that on the back of the label. The next thing we talked about was oak barrels and the difference between French and American barrels and why a winemaker may also choose to ferment in an oak barrel. Then we talked about the term unfiltered and why you may see wines, especially red, being left unfiltered. And this is a winemaker's choice 
Some feel that it leaves a bit more of the personality, a bit more of the terroir or soul of the place in the wine. So that is definitely something you may see on a label. In regards to pairing, generally these wines can be a little bit more fuller bodied or complex. So depending on pairing, we also talked about the term unfiltered and why a winemaker may choose not to filter his wine completely clean, but to leave a little bit of sediment in his wine style for you to experience when you enjoy the wine in the glass. We talked about bottle aging, dry farmed, and finally residual sugar. So I hope that you have enjoyed today's episode. I knew it was a bit of a wine geeky type of episode, but these are definitely winemaking techniques that you're going to see clues about on the back label, or they may be called out directly. And we're seeing more of that as people are looking for more information about the wines that they are enjoying. So definitely, if you visit some winery websites, you're going to see these terms. And I hope now you have a better understanding of how they impact your experience in the glass. So if you have any questions about any of the terms that we discussed today, if you're watching on YouTube, feel free to leave a comment below or feel free to email me at hello at whitegirlacademy.com. As always, I want to thank you for hanging out with me today. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. They come out every Tuesday. If you're not already following along White Girl Academy on Instagram and TikTok, we'd love to have you join us over there. And next week, be sure to tune in because I'm going to be discussing a few of my favorite Spanish wine and Spanish cheese pairings. So if you enjoy wine and cheese, and especially if you enjoy Spanish wine and cheese, next week is definitely an episode for you. I want to wish you a wonderful week. Now, cheers, everybody. I know.